Hi, good morning, everyone. My name is Barbara Chandler, and I would like to welcome every one of you to the first edition of our our table leadership lounge. And it's exactly what it stated. Our seat, our table, our voice, our narrative, a leadership lounge. We, we have uh, this lounge together, leadership lounge together, so that we could have the perspective from African-Americans, people of color in our community, as we um, are at a very pivotal time right now in history and seeking more adequate representation in areas such as politics, whether it be government, local government, national government, education, in the arts, we've decided to bring a table of leaders together every Friday from nine to 10 on WPRK 91.5 FM. And we're just going to have a series of community conversation. Our seat, our lounge is a great way in which we can showcase and highlight exactly who is in our community, the leaders in our community, whether it be historians, whether it be social media marketers, whether it be artists, we want to have a chance in which we curate and be in control of our own narrative. And that is where the premise of our seat, our table, leadership lounge has been founded upon. Uh, this is uh, intentionally that we do it on Martin Luther King Day. This is January the 15th. And in honor and celebration of all that Dr. King has done worldwide, globally, we wanted to roll out on a day that would be memorable for us, memorable for the community, again, in which we can begin to add to the conversation and not just add to it, but bring even more enlightenment um, and share a perspective that has been diminished in many different ways. Today, what we're doing is we are evening the score. And again, this is why our seat, our table, Leadership Lounge has been formed and it's been put together. So we are just so excited to be able to debut. Joining us today, we're going to have Fairland Livingston, who is our chief historian. Uh, Fairland Livingston is born and raised in West Winter Park. We're going to also hear from Pastor Claude Cheatham. He's one of the newer ministers in the West Winter Park area. He is with Bethel Baptist Church. And we're going to have a conversation with him around the speech, Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous speech, I Have a Dream. I think now is a very, very important time in which we can delve into that speech and the meaning and exactly how it is very relevant as far as what we're seeing today. So you are in for a lot. We're going to have some goal-setting tips from Coach Stephanie Burke. Uh, she's going to be, I know this is the beginning of the year, and everyone has all these grandiose resolutions and goals that they would like to try to attain. And always, 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 I think it's very important that we utilize who's in our community to help us gain and move forward to the things that we're trying to accomplish. We realize that we're unable to do everything on our own. So once again, this is where we are 
pulling our community together, pulling our resources together, seeing who's in our community and how can we continue to, to just move forward. We also have um, from an artist to an artist, that is an artist highlight, Andrew Brown. He will be moderating that session with local artisan Lauren Austin. And we are just so excited. Lauren Austin is a fabric artist and she will be joining us today. You're going to hear from her as far as what inspires her to create the artistic quilts and um, just just her creation and her vision and what goes into these storytelling quilts. She currently has an exhibition in Mount Dora. She has done work at the Hannibal Square Heritage Center um, and actually started off what is now a quilting guild for the Heritage Center. So we're excited to be able to bring you all these people with all this wealth of knowledge that we can continue to share information, create our own platforms, however that is, whatever that may look like, because we do have a perspective and we have a very strong perspective. And we want to be able to share that perspective, share the possibilities and potentials and opportunities that we have in our community. So with that being said, uh, once again, you are listening to Our Seat, Our Table, Leadership Lounge. This is WPRK. Please feel free to tune in. And also we do have a Facebook page. We are currently working on a website. You can find us on Facebook. It also tells you when we'll be airing. And we appreciate any support that we can gain from our community in sharing this information. So with no further ado, someone who I have directly benefited from her mentorship in working so closely with her. Um, she is one of my favorite people. I am always, always delighted to be in her presence. Um, I attribute uh, much of who I am today because of my relationship with Farrellyn Livingston and her unselfishness in pouring into me when she needs to and scolding me when she also needs to. So I think this is one of the great things about having such a community is that even if your immediate kinfolks aren't there, you still have your community kinfolks to, to keep you in line. So once again, you are listening to our seat, our table, the Leadership Lounge. And of course, this is part of WPRK in Winter Park. I am a resident of Winter Park. I've been living in Winter Park now for slightly over 10 years. I'm the manager of the Hannibal Square Heritage Center, as well as a former candidate for Winter Park City Commission. I've sat on boards in the city. I've sat on the Arts Board. I've sat on the apprentice of the Welburn Day Nursery. I've been embraced by the community. And um, we've done food drives, partnerships with different community members. Bethel Baptist Church, the Winter Park Community Center. So um, I, I have roots here. I'm, I'm glad to say I have roots because for a large portion of my life, I definitely moved around quite a bit. And um, in moving around and living in different spaces, you may live in the community, but it's a different thing when you become a part of the community and you can add to it. So um one of the people who, who embraced me right off the back, and like I said, I continue to work very closely with her, 
is our chief historian, Farrellyn Livingston. So today, Farrellyn's going to give us some of the history of Winter Park. And we also want to touch a little bit on Winter Park's politics and where we are from, from the 1800s to where we are today and have we progressed. So with no further ado, Farrellyn Livingston, if you can just give our listeners, our community listeners, partners, um, some some background on the history of Winter Park. Well, um, before Winter Park was ever incorporated, there were um, Black families living in what we now know as the Winter Park city limit. And in the early 18, around 1881, when Chase and Chapman, who were the founders, if you will, uh, who platted and established the area, when they had it platted and later the community began to involve with the help of African-Americans. And uh, as I, I would imagine that as payment, if you will, bartering, the African-American, they platted a small square-shaped community for the African-American residents that he expected to draw to the area as a labor source uh, for the area. And he d- dedicated land for a institution that would be used both as a church and a school. So in the early 1880s, there was an opportunity for education for African-Americans in the area. He named the area Hannibal. And because of its square shape, the area became known as Hannibal Square. Now, the original boundaries of Hannibal Square have expanded over the years, but that became mostly the business area and even residential area early on. Right now, that community is gentrified, and there's very little, if any, evidence that African Americans ever lived, worked, and worshipped there, except for the churches are still there. We do walking tours at the Heritage Center so that we can expose people to what used to be a thriving community for African-Americans, a segregated community, separate and apart from the rest of the town. As the city began, as the area began to grow, it was decided that it was time to incorporate. But you have to understand there was two separate groups. One group wanted Hannibal Square and its black residents included. The other group did not want Hannibal Square included. Now, what you have to understand about the history is that during that time, African-Americans were overwhelmingly Republican, and they had a a loyalty, if you will, uh, to that party. On the other side were what we would refer to as the Democrats. They did not want Hanover Square included because they felt that the Black residents would just go along with voting the way that Chase and Chapman, or the company as they called it, uh, would require or expect of them because of the 
felt that they owed something to the company. However, they had an original vote, first initial vote to incorporate. It didn't move forward. It was Mm -hmm. in July of 1887, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so they went back to the table and set it for October the 12th of 1887. Mm -hmm. Now, what you have to realize, there were more registered Republican voters, given the number of African-Americans registered, than there were of non-people of color, if you will. Okay. And that's because they were long-time residents? Full-time residents? That's because these new residents came not quite uh, 20 years removed from slavery. Mm. And as word got around, word of mouth, people began began to come to the area. And so there was a large number of residents in the Hannibal Square community. And as a result, those people could tip the uh, voting towards the Republican side meaning that there was a possibility that Blacks would serve in elected officials, which is not setting well with the other group. Right. Okay. So, so in October of 1887, the Blacks showed up at the voting place at the corner of Park Avenue and Morris. Correct. That was Ergo's general store. And the building still exists. The Mars was led by Gus Henderson, a young man who came to the area from the Lake City area with the idea that he would have his own publishing company and newspaper. Mm-hmm. They say he was very, he was a very eloquent speaker and he was a leader in the community. Okay. And so on the day of the vote, Gus led Hannibal Square residents down to Ergo's general store mm-hmm. for a vote. And and Fairling, you did mention that Ergoods, the building is still there. What is the building currently called? Well, the building is still there at the corner of uh, Park and Morris, and it's been several businesses over the decades. You know, I grew when I grew up, it was a drugstore on okay. the corner, and then later it was, it's been oh my God, it's been Spice, it's been it's been I different think it was businesses. A jewelry store the last time I was there. Yeah, I don't know what it is now. But you have to also realize that the first attempt to incorporate earlier that same year failed because African-Americans did not show up at the polls to vote. And if you would go to the archives over at the Winnipeg Public Library and or the Rollins Library, you'll see letters back and forth in the paper of the day, the lock mead. Mm-hmm back and forth about who should be involved and why. And and Gus always made such a good case for why he voted and was always registered as a Republican. Republican. And so on that day in October, 1887, Mm -hmm. when he marched across the railroad tracks with Hannibal Square residents, even those who were not young enough, old enough to vote, even women who could not vote, Mm-hmm. When they showed up, they had a quorum. And when they voted for the elected officials, two black men were elected. Wow. Walter Benjamin Simpson, who came from the Lake City area, mm-hmm. and Frank R. Israel, who came from the Live Oak area. They were elected. 
immediately after that election, members of the Democratic Party went to Tallahassee to the legislature to see okay. if they would overturn that election. Okay. And they sent a, the, the legislature sent a mediator down and okay. it was decided that the election was legal and the election should stand. Okay. Now, each time that these two men came up for re-election, they were still maintained in office. Hmm. In October of 1892, again, they still were members of what they, well, they called them aldermen at that time, but they would be today's commissioners. When the election was over, that October of 1892, once again, a group went before the Florida legislature and mm -hmm. requested, one, that the election be overturned, mm -hmm. Hanover Square be removed from the town limits, and a new election be held within a certain um, period of time. Okay. So that order came down in May of 1893. And when those, when the uh, current aldermen of that time were no longer in service to the community, they had a new commission, a set of aldermen come in. Okay. And no black has served in any elected official in Winter Park, Florida since May of 1893. Okay. Which, which, as you all know, has black leadership. Um, and, and the reason why we have brought our seat, our table to the forefront is because we know without inclusion at the table, some people are going to be left out of the conversation. Um, things like gentrification, which has happened in this community, and not just the fact that gentrification has happened in Winter Park, we realize that this is a global issue, but I think the rapidness of gentrification happening in this community, do you think that if there was someone of color representing the area, if single member district was in place, would that make a difference as to how soon or how quickly gentrification happened and a lot of the longtime residents ha were displaced? Well, I'd like to say that gentrification started much, much longer or further back than what a lot of us realize. Mm -hmm. you know, pe people were buying up property and, you know, and renting property, I would say as early as the 40s or so, okay. because many of the pioneer families had passed on mm -hmm. and many of their descendants had moved on to better grounds because of opportunities, you know, people who had been in the military and saw that there was life outside of the segregated South, which Florida is deep South. Mm -hmm. And for those who went away to college and came back home and had to work as uh, doormen at the uh, Hamilton hotel mm -hmm. or do day work at people homes. And these people went up North and that way they could have jobs that was moving line with their skill set. So it's not a, a matter of figuring out blame because people sold off some of their property, you know, some of their descendants, some didn't, some still remain in the city. Correct. However, as far as uh, single districts, since African-Americans got the right to vote, in 65, in the 1965 Voters' Rights Act, there should have been 
single district so that people from that community or a person from that community could be a part and have a seat at the table. Now, that isn't, at that time, there were, because it was a segregated community, the, the, um, there was a good chance that a black or blacks could be on the commission. Mm-hmm. However, now, with the gentrification, mm-hmm. there could be a black mm-hmm. or someone who has participated in gentrification unknowingly, someone who moved there because the houses were affordable, the lot was affordable or whatever, and they still have compassion Correct. and they believe in uh, inclusion and equal Correct. rights, et cetera. So that could happen because even now, I would say that if an African-American or two was on the city commission, a lot mm-hmm. of things would be different because you have a chance to make a case with your peers on the commission. Correct. See, um, everybody, you know, I don't really understand the, all there is to know and do about white culture. I didn't grow up white. I'm not white. I didn't grow mm-hmm. up, you know, on the east side of Winter Park. I grew up on the segregated side of Winter Park. Correct. But if you can sit down with people mm-hmm. and talk to them, about the issues that concern and face your community, I believe you can make these cases. And some of these things that have been done would not been, have been done at the pace, pace. Correct. At the pace that it has been in the last 20 to 30 years. Right. And you would have had someone advocating. I think the other thing um, we, we sometimes um, overlook when it comes to single member district, it is the fact of representation, but it's also the fact of local control. The person who is living in area, particular district can speak directly to the issues. Where in a city like Winter Park, where we are still an at-large voting uh, community, a lot of our current commissioners are not living in the area and they're making decisions which directly impact residents in areas that they do not live in. So they're not having the firsthand experience. Um, And we bring this topic up very early because we know in June, Winter Park, the city of Winter Park, had the opportunity to at least have this placed on the ballot. And due to one of the commissioners not showing up, not keeping his word to the community, it's like once again, we have been left to, to hold the bag and fix the pieces back to a, a situation that we thought that they should be advocating for us. And I just want to bring the uh, listeners up to speed. And there's a local organization, which I too am a part of. It's the Coalition for Access and Representation. During the civil unrest, uh, uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, we reached out to our city commissioners to begin to let's look at having single member district on the ballot. In the very first voting, we received three, not the very first, but we received three yeses from commissioners, Commissioner Marty Sullivan, Commissioner Todd Weaver, and Commissioner Sheila DeCicio. And basically this was to begin the process of looking at having this measure on the ballot. 
somewhere, somewhere, somehow, you know, um, they failed us. Commissioner Todd Weaver did not show up to a very important commission meeting. And once again, it's left on the shoulders of those who have been disenfranchised to try to re-enfranchise themselves. So right now, what the, the opportunities or the uh, what we're left to do is to create a, a citizen's petition, which more than likely that will happen. It's in the making. But then we also have to get people to go into one of the deadliest pandemics and go door to door or find a safe way in which to have over 2000 petitions signed in which this needs to be placed on the ballot. And I would have to say shame on Winter Park. Did they not consider the, the, this pandemic and what it can do, not only just to the people who are collecting signatures, but to the people whose doors, who would want to see this, who may want to sign the petition. So this is why we're addressing it very early, because we see without inclusive, we see this from a broader scope, a global scope, that without inclusive representation, where we're left, what, what the community looks like or what the people look like. So it's trying to navigate our way, navigate ourselves as Black people, as African-Americans, into having some type of leadership to be a part of the discussion. So, Carolyn, I want to thank you so much. You're quite welcome. And, and sharing that information. And we certainly hope to, to hear from you again. I just have one question for you. Uh, our our table leadership round. What does the word leadership tell? Tell us what the word leadership means to you. What does uh, a community leader or a leader in power? What does that look like to you? Well, for me personally, having worked in administration and leadership in uh, my career, I see leadership as responsibility. Mm. A responsibility to those under your charge, if you will, those you're responsible for, whether it's uh, a commissioner, whether it's a supervisor in some line of work or whatever, I see it as a responsibility to those people to make sure that their work environment, that their communities, that their schools are all treated with the same and measured by the same standard as others. Correct. You know, um, if you go back and look at some of the yearbooks from some of the high schools in Orange County, including uh, Winter Park High School, you'll see some very racial uh, mm. things in those yearbooks. Mm. And mm. that was after the schools were integrated. And so, you know, uh, you know, Winter Park is the city of culture, art and, arts and culture. But sometimes, most times to me, it looks like the culture they're talking about is white culture yeah. Yeah. and artistic culture. They're not talking about black culture mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or people of color culture. Now, I vaguely remember when I was growing up that at one time it was called the City of Homes, and I can mm -hmm. be corrected on that. <laughs> and that fit better because a lot of black people did own their homes. But right now, this art and culture is all about yeah. white and white privilege and keeping the charm we, we keep hearing about keeping the charm there is no charm there is no charm there is no charm 
Yeah, it's so subjective. That's such a subject, yeah. subjective mm -hmm. term. And I know that one of the candidates who's currently running, that's his uh, one of his slogans. And we questioned him. What does that that actually mean? And, you know, charm to you and charm to me and some charm to someone in power. It's completely different. So but thank when I think you of, again. Okay. But when I think about people who have been displaced, who, uh -huh. who had to leave the the West Side and move over to Allentown, Mount, Washington Shores, and other mm -hmm. neighborhoods of color, which eventually they'll be they'll be relocated from those areas as as, as areas are gentrified. I don't see any charm. <laughs> and so it is, and so it is. Hey, Fairlyn, we want to thank you for uh, making a debut. Our seat, our table. It's our voice. It's our narrative, and we get to share it. Coming up next, we have Pastor Claude Cheatham. Pastor Claude Cheatham is maybe about a year, two years into his ministry at Bethel Mission, Missionary Baptist Church here in Winter Park. And we are so excited and delighted to have him. Uh, Pastor Cheatham and I, we were able to collaborate during uh, the summertime and we did a food drive. We saw the need. It was in the height of the pandemic. We are a community with elders, uh, single, single parent uh, families, uh, young families, and, and we saw the need. We connected with another community partner, Promise Seeds, I believe. And from there, we were able to, to do what we do, activate our community. Um, as African-Americans growing up in tight-knit communities, we, we've seen these things done coming from a uh, church background. When we have a space, we create spaces for others. So I am so delighted to share this space. And that's a I'm so happy you're here. Thank you for coming out. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you for inviting us on to share with you in this forum. I'm Pastor Freedom. I am a millennium. And I make no shame about it. I'm a husband, a father, uh, and a transforming influencer. My desire is is to um, is to call uh, our community into oneness um, and to uh, create through Christ, through economic development, um, and uh, community program. Um, I believe all of that speaks to uh, who I am and what I believe. Excellent. So one of the reasons I certainly brought you is I think now, once again, more than ever, we have such opportunity in our community and we want to be able to leverage that. We want to be able to continue to engage more civic engagement. We have to address the elephant in the room. Um, especially during Martin Luther King's birthday, what we've seen is completely disgraceful. Sure. But we, as black people, we've been facing this for a um, long time now. Some of that neutral us. Past, as a millennial pastor, pastor a millennial in general, when we think of the speech, speech, I have a dream. I, have a dream. I, need, I need you to go through that with and us. How and is how it, is it relative? And how does it, and how does it play out, out to what we're seeing? Civil unrest. The civil unrest. The capital, the capital in, being... Um, by, by people who are um, totally against the the new administration that's coming in. How how do you describe in your words when we hear the speech? I have a dream. Tell me how does that play out um, in this particular time. 
Wow, um, such a loaded question. And I think that uh, with um, with Dr. King being one of my role models um, and a profound thought leader um, that sought to unify people, I think that when ex in exploring um, his content, specifically the I Have Dreams speech, um, and segueing that into what we see presently that we're in, um, I think that uh, we are in a interesting time. It's almost as if we are reliving mm -hmm. uh, the setting of his speech all over again. Yeah. Um, and I think that 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 should not only cause pause, but it should cause many of us to uh, reflect on those words and the fact that he simply said, I have a dream. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have to ensure that that dream is not just a uh, thought process or a uh, a statement that mm -hmm. is, that sounds catchy, but we must ensure that that dream becomes a reality right. um, by ensuring that what happened at the Capitol does not happen again. Right. And we put in place mechanisms to ensure, first and foremost, but secondly, uh, we put in place to ensure um, that those that seek to practice the uh, divisive rhetoric um, don't have a place in our communities, don't have a place uh, um, to exist. Um, and so I think that even exploring the content of this speech when he says that one day I hope that my children are not judged by the color of their and about the content of their character mm -hmm. um, resonates with me even even in reflecting on we're in Winter Park we're in a crucial position mm -hmm. um, we're in a, a a position that really needs um, a great deal uh, of uh, hands yeah. um, because it appears that we have been judged uh, by the color of our skin. And not uh, yes. and, and and not by our character. Exactly. Um, yeah. And then when we not to interrupt you, but here, but when we think of Winter Park and the slogan um, "Arts and Culture," sure. When we think about the history, as Farrell and Livingston has just shared with us, when we think about the the people who continue to live here right now, this should be a model community. Sure. This should be a model community. And to think that it's not, and I know a lot of times you will hear people say, oh, wow, I love Winter Park. I love the lakes. I love coming over to the shopping, the sure. restaurants, not realizing there are people here living in the community who don't go to the lakes, who right. don't feel comfortable going to the lakes, right. who don't feel comfortable going shopping. Sure. How do we, how do we re-navigate that as Black people, Black leaders in a community where we work, where we live, where we play, how do we begin to re-edify ourselves in this moment? Absolutely, no loaded question. I think, um, I, I think in exploring that question, in the areas where we have influence, I think we have to create fresh spaces uh, mm -hmm. of inclusion, um, create fresh mechanisms whereby people can. Uh, feel embraced. Right. Uh, what I mean by that is um, we, we see all of these restaurants and we see uh, all of these businesses, mm -hmm. um, but how many of them are black? Mm 
uh, and how many of them are occupied uh, even by black millennials. Um, you know, we see the uh, the houses that are going up uh, that are million that are million dollar mansions. Well, mm -hmm. uh, how are we putting in place uh, um, a house affordable housing to where um, to where a millennial family or even just a black family or black or brown family can even exist in. So I think that uh, in exploring that question, we've got to take ownership, even as, as the church, uh, as individuals, as collective unit, um, we got to take ownership um, for this uh, and then start strategizing, working together, uh, strategizing to come up with a transformative and uh, to where businesses are not just not just occupied by those that are of a lighter hue, but that yes. businesses are now being occupied by those that uh, that are black and brown. Mm -hmm. I think that we've got to take ownership and in, in design desire to work together, right. Um, right. which is important for me right. uh, because you know. All generations have to find a way mm -hmm. to exist and create transformative space. Right, and, um, and, and that's work how together with this faith, we with this faith, we will mm -hmm. be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, mm -hmm. to go to jail together, to climb up for freedom together. Yeah. knowing that we will be free one day. Absolutely, that is a line in his speech. As you said, work together. Mm -hmm. So in that, once again, when we come back to modern times, I know um, as black leaders, black professionals, the black community, we're always saying we got to work together. It cannot be just a saying anymore. Sure. I do believe overall, this is me personally from my interactions with sure. so many grassroots organizations, professional organizations. I do believe that we are collaborating much better than we have because of technology. Sure. We're able to build those relationships even if we're not in front of each other, even if we're not um, in, in the same spaces, because many of us are traveling now. Sure, sure. But how do we make it visible that we are doing these things? How yeah. do we make sure that our messaging is getting to the people um, or our clients, depending on what, what clients you're serving, uh, what communities you're serving? Um, information dissemination is always, um, it, it can always pose a, a threat of getting tangible information. Um, and so those are the things I look like. Yeah. Infrastructure. What's right. our infrastructure for communication? Right. Well, we have some of the best media in, in Central Florida. There's Onyx Magazine. There's the Caribbean Passport. Sure. There's The Wire, 94.5. Monica Mays still does a lot of things. Sure. So I think a lot of our deficits are, are not as wide as maybe once upon a time, but we, we continue to keep striving. So so when I speak to uh, deficits or even the divide mm -hmm. or, or, or even the, the necessary need for working together and partnerships and the not... Uh, and not being and not totally seeing all of that displayed, I speak to uh, the, the 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 black and brown church, okay. um, and that that's what what I, I that's my my angle uh, in saying that I would love to see um, uh, faith 
uh, leaders come together um, to uh, to energize their congregation. Mm-hmm. Um, that that that's a, a big statement that's to energize powerful. their congregation mm-hmm. to be you transformative. Oh, I, I you know I'm not scared <laughs> of nobody, and uh, I, <laughs> yeah, you know. Okay. Uh, but no, in all seriousness, I think that that is that that's what be- begins to build community because you got to understand mm-hmm. that part of Martin Luther King's responsibility was to unite people. Many don't talk about the fact uh, that in the 60s and uh, in the 60s and in the 50s, mm-hmm. uh, while Martin Luther King was serving uh, as a millennial pastor, yes. uh, the community <laughs> hated him. That's right. uh, um, but it wasn't the community specifically. It was it was uh, it was the churches, mm-hmm. the pastors mm-hmm. uh, of that day that would not endeavor to, you know, to 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 work together uh, and get behind the, the message um, uh, that, that he was he was sharing. So I think that, and to sum that up, I think that that many of our churches um, uh, around have to work together to produce, um, to produce that transformation. Because again, um, the, the weight, um, the weight and the power is in those that sit in the pews. And now that those that are online watching our services, um, you know, how are, how is the hearer encouraged to want to start, uh, a, a business or start, uh, some type of, uh, um, unifying effort, Mm -hmm. um, to, to absolutely, (laughs) because I, am a firm believer that if you're, um, if you're not, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're on the menu. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. And how you get chopped up on the menu also poses a problem. Absolutely. So I know that we are a few minutes away, a few minutes shy. First of all, thank you so much for taking the time. It's a pleasure. I know that you do quite a bit. You're a school teacher. I went to your website. How can people find you? Absolutely. You can uh, you can find us on uh, on the on World Wide Web, www.claudecheatham.com, uh, as well on uh, all social media platforms, uh, CDC2 Speaks, um, CDC2 Speaks, and uh, we would love to connect with you um, and engage you uh, in, in a multiplicity of ways. Wow. So, Claude, one last, Pastor Cheatham, one last question. Mm-hmm. Leadership. Internal leadership, the blueprint for uh, this platform, our seat, our table, the leadership lounge, leadership, describe leadership. What does leadership mean to you? What it is? What does it look like? How, how do you personally carry it out? Yeah, um, great question. And uh, I listened to uh, the, the responses um, um, and what a uh, powerful sharing um, of Winter Park's history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will I will surmise leadership to be um, creative, fresh expressions mm-hmm. um, rooted and grounded in, in integrity and intentionality um, with the desire um, to ultimately unite people. Wow. Wow. That's a lot. Talk about a mouthful. And with all that being executed, I I think that I think I do believe that black people, we are doing a fantastic job of leading our communities, especially especially I say this. I say this to people all the time on a very grassroots level. I give a lot of props to these grassroots organizers. I see that uh, the communities, Carver Shores, Washington Shores, Mm -hmm. Sanford, you have leadership that reflects the community that's actually 
uh, on the ground, on the very ground level, um, and, and just leading and guiding their, their community, whether it's in jobs, resources, sure. uh, any opportunities. And, and I say, we have people doing the work. We want to highlight those people doing the work. Absolutely. You're invited to this table because it's our table, it's our seat, and it's our table. So, Pastor Cheatham, we want to thank you for debuting Most with certainly. us. Thank you so very much. Absolutely. So we're going to keep this thing moving. It is our table. It is our seat. And this is the Leadership Lounge. My name is Barbara Chandler, and you are listening to WPRK Radio. This is a fantastic, fantastic show. I hope that everyone listening is having a really, really good time. We do have a few more people that are joining us today. Like I said, you're going to hear from an artist to an artist. Andrew Brown with Brown Box Creative Solutions is a correspondent with um, our artists. We want to make sure that we are highlighting artists. We realize at this very time with COVID, due to COVID, that many, many jobs, uh, many artists have been displaced due to COVID. So not being able to perform, not being able to share their talents has also impacted the community. I, I speak for myself and for many others, arts is how I stay inspired. Whether it's through listening to music, going into galleries and seeing the artwork, this is how I stay inspired. Become the art that keeps you inspired is what I always say. And we always have artists that are doing that. So we have Lauren Austin. I mentioned Lauren to you. Lauren Austin is a fabric artist. She has done things here in the uh, Winter Park community. Hannibal Square community. She's lived abroad. She currently now has, she's actually lived in China. Um, and currently now she has an exhibit in Mondora. But I need to say more because Andrew Brown, again, from an artist to an artist with Andrew Brown. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. Hi, Lauren. Hey, Andrew. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I think I'm all right. You know, awesome. as well as can be, given the situation. That's it. I know it. I know it. Uh, so we're going to jump right in. I know that I don't want to take too much of your time because I know you are a busy woman. Let's start out. How did you get started with quilting? I made my first quilt when I was seven years old. Oh, wow. It came about because... My mother and grandmother had a group of sister friends that would meet every Tuesday for what they called sip and sew. Mm. And they weren't sipping tea, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and this was their fellowship, their uh, time to be together. Um, and it was an amazing place to hear all the stories and all the gossip, mm -hmm. everything going on. And I was that little pitcher with big ears, and I would sit under the quilt frame while they were working to hear the stories that I absolutely couldn't really understand, mm -hmm. but just was just so big-eyed and interested in what was going on. And one of the ladies 
caught me under there and said, well, girl, if you're going to be here, you've got to do some work. Mm. And so they gave me a needle and thread and taught me how to do the quilting on a frame. And I felt a part of it uh, with the caveat that I had to keep quiet because this, these were grown folks talking. And I tried to do that and felt part of it. And then later started on a project of my own. And ever since then, I've been making quilts. So you talked about the storytelling that they did amongst themselves and you were kind of like a, an eavesdropper almost until mm-hmm. you became a part of it. Talk about how storytelling and quilting are related together. Well, I think um, I have to say that that when I'm talking about quilting, I'm talking about the quilting in African-American life. Mm-hmm. Because I think that different communities deal with quilting differently. And uh, uh, mostly what the quilts in that particular group were for, I mean, there was a lot of other kinds of textiles. There were was knitting and crocheting and embroidery was a big thing. People made what they wanted to make. Mm-hmm. And I just was drawn to the quilting in part because I could hide under the frame. Um, but also I just, the, the sewing part of it really spoke to me, that down of the needle. Um, I would say that, that our quilts tell stories in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's an actual picture of, uh, or a rendition of something in life or in imagination. Uh, there quilts by um, Harriet Powers, uh, that one is in Smithsonian and one is in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, that are superlative applique quilts with that are intensely quilted um, and tell amazing, fantastical stories that you don't need words printed to tell you what's going on. You can see it. But there are other quilts that are uh, more the traditional geometric patterns that tell stories, one, from the feeling you get from looking at them, that they invoke uh, joy or sadness or whatever is going on by their color selection. Um, But it could also be that they tell a story because the fabric being used is particular to them and they uh, people can see the the um, pants or shirt or this is my dress when I was pregnant with you or this is my whatever it is so the actual fabric tells a story or it could be a combination of all of those things it could be a pictorial quilt made of fabric that's important to the maker or to the person that that the maker is giving it to, that they know and can point out, I made a quilt about my first son, Jesse, when he started composing music, and it's called He's Composing Himself. And there's an image of him at the piano, and an image of me and and his younger brother 
watching him compose music and the fabric in the figure of the mother in the piece, she's wearing a dress that's made of fabric from a dress I wore when I was pregnant with my son. So that's how it works. Now, where can, I know you have a new exhibit out, Birds Are My People. Where can people view that? It's at the Mount Dora Center for the Arts in Mount Dora. I think it's about maybe 40 minutes away from from us here in uh, Winter Park, Orlando area. Mm -hmm. I actually am going to be teaching two classes, two workshops um, on... The last two Saturdays of this month, one on making a, your own photo memory quilt. Um, and that, I'm just looking at my calendar. Okay, that will be on the 23rd. And then on the 30th, I will teach um, machine quilt drawing. Um, and we're going to be doing this all very safely with social distancing and mask wearing. I'm hopeful that uh, I can only have six students in a class, so I think we'll be okay. Awesome, Lauren. Well, from one artist, from one fabric artist to another, I know that your passion and your skill comes through and comes alive in your quilts. Thank you so much for taking this time to talk with us about it and power of storytelling that can be told okay. through quilts. All righty. So I'm going to turn, turn it back. You too. I'm going to turn it back over to Barbara. And I believe she has one segment left. So let's let's turn it back over to you, Barbara. All right. All right. All right. So you are continually listening to Our Seat, Our Table, the Leadership Lounge. This is WPRK. We want to thank you all for joining us on our debut. Up next, we have with us Stephanie Burke with the Powell Potential. It's that time of the year. Stephanie, give us three tips on goal setting. Awesome. So hello, everyone. Um, I'm going to make it quick because I know that we are short on time. So I have three quick tips to set goals. So we all hear this notion of smart goals over and over and over again, right? Every time you get ready to make a goal, they say, make it smart. What happens after you make it smart and what can you do to make sure that you are following through on those smart goals as you continue to go on throughout the year? Right. So 2020 had a lot of challenges as we go into 2021. um, We want to make sure that we are continuing to keep up with the things that we said we wanted to do. And how do we do that? The first would be to write it down. The famous Maria Montessori, who has schools literally built after um, the things that she put into place, said, if what the hand does, the mind remembers. And so as we think about that, I hear people all the time say, oh, I don't write things down. I put it in my calendar or, you know, your digital calendar or I speak it into my phone and then my phone reminds me. I was telling someone the other day, what happens is we're so used to our phone going off, right? That eventually we stop listening to a lot of those um, notifications that come through. So they pile up. 
And what happens when they pile up is that we still don't meet or do some of those goals that we were planning to do. So once you write things down, one, it helps you to clearly communicate and express yourself. It helps you to retain information. It eliminates stress and it helps you to remain focused. When you write something down, it stays at the tip of your brain. Um, and even if you can't quite remember, like, oh, I know I had that thing I was supposed to do. If it's written down, you can always flip back to your notes and see what that thing is so that you can follow through on it, all right? So that's one. One is write it down. Number two would be to put a date on it, all right? So it is so important that when we write down our goals, we're not saying, oh, I'm gonna do these seven things, right? When are you gonna do those things? How will you make sure that you get to those things? What are the steps to actually achieving those things? I can wake up today and say, you know what? I'm gonna be a millionaire. How will I get there though? What does that look like? All right. So when we actually put a date on it, we have a roadmap to success. We not only know what we want to do, but how are we going to get to the point to where we are doing it? Give us the last one. The last one will be to keep yourself accountable. Now, you do this by either um, following through on the things that you said that you were going to do. You said you were going to do these things. Now you have to follow through. You can also do it by grabbing yourself a partner to help keep you accountable. Not someone who's going to say, yes, let's do it, but someone who's going to say, you know what? This is what you need to do. This is what you said that you were going to do. I want to see you do it. All right. And so that is your three tips for goal setting. Excellent. Thank you, Stephanie Burke. You can find Stephanie at Power of Potential on IG. We want to thank you all once again. Our seat, our table, Leadership Lounge, Friday, WPRK. Tune in Friday mornings from 9 to 10. Tell your friends. That was a lot of information that we covered in one hour, and there is so much more to come. Once again, thank you for our first debut, and we look forward to you joining us again.